Hello, welcome back. This is Creative Chit Chat, and we're on to episode number 19, and it's with Sam Gonsalves. Sam is a fellow podcaster, he's an amazing documentary filmmaker, uh, and also does a bit of work at the Hot Chocolate Trust. Chat a lot about the podcast. Um, he started up one called Mixtape of Everything. And we actually did a bit of an exchange. So I've been on his, which is now released, which you can find at soundcloud.com forward slash everything mixtape. Or you can follow him on Twitter and it's at mixtape of things. Basically, the format is short 15 minute podcasts where anyone can come on and recommend absolutely anything that they like. A few weeks ago, I went on and recommended Adidas Superstar Trainers. Uh, I'm not going to say any more than that, but if you do want to go to the episode, go and check out the SoundCloud, check out the Twitter. Uh, the links are in the show notes. We also chat quite in depth about his documentary work. I mean, there's a couple of, of real standout films that he's made, uh, one of which being Lifespan of Utopia. Uh, Sam, originally being from Brazil, he looks into the sort of transformation of Brasilia as a city and how it, it was sort of given this futuristic, utopian vision um, that just d- did not work for the city. And then he starts to pull parallels between that and the the Hilltown Maltleys in Dundee. And then he starts to look at the new utopian vision that we're, we're being given down in the waterfront and what that means for the city and, and the parallels between what happened in Brasilia and, and what's happening now. So if you've not checked out his work already, I'd highly recommend it, even before you, you listen to this podcast. Um, if you check out Lifespan of Utopias and also Colettivo, they are two fantastic pieces of work, short films, so well worth 20 minutes of your life. Both are in the show notes, so go and check them out. Aside from that, I know I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I was going to be doing a roundtable for the first time. Uh, I've now recorded that. It went amazingly well. So pleased with how it turned out. Uh, I'm just editing it up just now, so it'll be ready to go in the next couple of weeks. But I thought I'll give you a little taster for what else is coming in, in the next month or so. So we've got Sophia Sita, who is an Italian illustrator living and working in Dundee talk about her story and about her exhibiting at the DCA Thompson exhibition. I've also got Gillian Eason, the head of Creative Dundee, who just does some unbelievable and remarkable work around the city and is really championing the creative community and the people within it. Uh, so we talk about her and the rest of the team at Creative Dundee. And then I've also got Dr Fiona Monroe, who graduated from Dundee Uni, did her PhD there, went in to work at various organisations doing user research, and then contracted stage four ovarian cancer. As you would expect, it completely transformed her life. And we talk about this amazing story and journey where she's become a massive inspiration for people with and, and without cancer. And she's blogged and documented everything and been so open and honest about the the process and the hardships and how she's used positive thinking and and sort of design thinking, I suppose, to really get through that experience and come out smiling. She's absolutely remarkable. um, And it's a wonderful story that we'll be putting out in the next couple of weeks or so. So, yeah, it's an exciting 
month or so coming up on the podcast. It just makes me realise that I need to keep it diverse, need to keep it interesting, um, and I will definitely be doing more roundtables because, yeah, it was super interesting. So, let's get on to this week's podcast, and it's number 19 with Sam Gonzalez. So yeah, I, I, um, I'm from Brazil originally, and I moved here when I was 17. I guess I always wanted to be to do journalism. Um, that was since I was a kid watching the New Adventures of Superman, which is like a rom com with Superman and Lois Lane, w- which kids shouldn't watch. I always wanted to be a journalist, and kind of kept that dream until I moved here when I was 17 with my parents, and didn't speak very much English. And at that point, when you say here. Where Here to Dundee. So Dundee, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I moved away to Glasgow, but but yeah, moved straight to Dundee from São Paulo. <laughs> we were living in Longford, and and we lived in São Paulo before. So São Paulo is the second biggest city in the world, <laughs> has you know five times the population of Scotland uh, in one city, and we moved to Longford. <laughs> <laughs> um, we realized later that in one this one big main kind of avenue in São Paulo that we lived for for a little while, more people lived on that avenue than in Dundee as a whole <laughs> yeah so it's hard to wrap your mind around that we're just hanging out here and like why is it so quiet like why is there no one around but yeah so so i wanted to be a journalist but moved here and didn't speak very much english and, and thought that you know the, the one thing you gotta know to be a journalist is, is how to speak the language so that i guess kind of set me in a i don't know questioning that assumption that i made that i would love to work in a newspaper and thinking actually what is it that i really love about this kind of thing um, and then, you know, worked in community projects for a while and, and really started to get an interest in filmmaking. You know, I was always, always loved films, but, but, but you know, had access to a camera and started doing that kind of thing. And realized that actually my passion was nonfiction. You know, it wasn't necessarily the opinion piece in the newspaper, but it was finding a real life story and then transforming that into a narrative. And I guess that's that's kind of where it came from. It's kind of off-brand journalism that I that I um, wanted to do. When you first came to Dundee or Long Forgan, and what were you up to? What were you doing? I was in school. I was in my last year of school, um, doing fifth year, and it was it was crazy. Like it was the worst. I mean, <laughs> you know, you get to school to fifth year, uh, not speaking the English, the language a whole lot. Um, and I remember sitting in my first geography class and I had some grasp, like I could understand a few words and, and little things coming out, but I sat in my first geography class and I couldn't understand a word the teacher was saying, like not at all. And at one point in the class, I think she picked up on that. And as she gave people like other exercises on fifth year level, she literally just put a map of Britain on my desk and, and I was just like, look at that for a while. Like, so I spent the first fifth year geography class, like higher geography Looking at this map of Britain, I was like, okay, I guess we're here. <laughs> like, where's everything else? I only know where London is because of that one class, to be honest. <laughs> That's, you know, that was my first introduction to everything. Um, so, yeah, so it was the worst. And it was, like, really, really difficult. Um, I remember doing this prelim, um, English prelim. Again, I don't know why I was doing that stuff, because I didn't speak the language. But I was doing an English prelim, uh, higher English, and you had two newspaper articles that you had to compare and answer questions on. And one of the articles was on whether Winnie the Pooh is a bad influence for kids' like eating habits. <laughs> and I looked at that paper and I was like, 
who the fuck is Winnie the Pooh? (laughs) (laughs) I have, and I mean, there was bits of Winnie the Pooh in Brazil, you know, you saw some merch or whatever, but I had no idea, like, yeah, so just a bunch of experiences like that, I think, in the first year of just something totally basic that I was like, what? I'm also kind of interested in the article now when that was there an epidemic of kids <laughs> with pots of honey just <laughs> yeah. kids with pots of honey wearing no trousers. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a crazy, crazy year. <laughs> so at what point did you start to come interested in the, the medium of video or, or mm. film? I guess I've always been like, I, I, you know, as a kid I watched a lot of films and, and my parents were really into films and I yeah, just kind of loved watching stuff and still do. Um, and I I guess the change was when we, we moved here and unlike Brazil, you had affordable access to equipment. Um, you know, and even, you know, my first smartphone I got like five years ago or so. Like we forget how short, short it has been the life of smartphones and mm-hmm. video on your yeah. phone, you know. But, you know, I left Brazil in 2007. By that time, we didn't have phones that make videos. It's not a thing that you could just kind of save up a little bit and afford to buy a DSLR in Brazil, you know, and much less do a kind of film degree and, and all of that stuff. You know, it's just a totally different kind of socioeconomic culture in a sense. And I moved here and I realized that actually you go to Amazon and you can buy a Nikon for like 200 quid, you know, and, and you can kind of save up for that for a little bit. And so I just started making little things, you know, and I actually, when I was in school in Brazil, we tried to make some things. We had a, we had a photo camera. And we would, um, we, we tried to make basically animation with like real photos or whatever to try and get as close to film as we wanted. My favorite was that we tried to do a Brazilian James Bond film. And we had this guy from my class be play James Bond. And he was going to be in this restaurant, like making a deal with someone and like giving them a bunch of cash. And there was an explosive inside of the like bunch of cash. And so then we just had these photos. Like, so it was just like jitter from him, like from position to position with subtitles at the bottom. And then he was like walking away from the restaurant and someone would just pop in behind with a big like bit of paper saying boom <laughs> because he exploded the restaurant. So yeah, <laughs> so I guess I pushed for him as much as I, as I could in different contexts. But then when I moved here, there was like real access to it. And I was like, you know what? It's not that hard to get a, a, like your phone to record a voice conversation with someone, an audio conversation with someone and then make make a video out of that. And that's how I kind of started. So I, I did two or three YouTube clips that I just met friends and said tell me a story you like you know and then they told me a kind of five ten minute story and I put some static images of like different like cool buildings or things that would kind of relate to that story in some way or whatever and yeah and it suddenly got I don't know achievable you know it suddenly was something that I realized I could do yeah so yeah so what after after you finished finished school and you'd learned the map of Britain um. <laughs> no, I see. No, I'm not there yet. Take it easy. <laughs> yeah, we know that. Uh, so yeah, where did you go from there? Did you get a job? Did you? Yeah, so I moved to, I moved to Paisley with my parents actually, because um, they they moved up there, and then I started going to university in Glasgow, um, and did a, again like in that time of not knowing how I could do journalism that I really liked, you know, without being, I don't know, having that master mastery of the language you know so i so i did this degree in urban studies and theology which was it's closer to some of the kind of community work that i've that i've always kind of done and that i'm doing right now with hot chocolate trust 
so yeah, so they did that degree and then came out of it and moved to Dundee for a job with Hot Chocolate, uh, which is the community project that I'm working on right now. And then started thinking, wait a second, like I, re- I can transform that passion for journalism into something about film, something about documentary, you know, something that's not the kind of writing something for the paper, but actually telling a real narrative, you know, a nonfiction narrative. Um, and yeah, started making those films and then eventually went to Duncan of Jordanson to do my MFA in Arts and Humanities, focusing on documentary and nonfiction narratives and that kind of thing. So that was after Paisley you decided back to Dundee? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and was that a particular draw of that course? or was um, it No, it was, or... it was a draw of both the city and Hot Chocolate Trust. I think they were both... Hot Chocolate, when I moved here and I didn't speak the language very well and I didn't know a lot of people... Hot Chocolate came in as a really key place for me to, they, they uh, recruited me to volunteer and I, you know, I was the worst volunteer ever because like I didn't, you know, didn't, wasn't very good at knowing the cultural norms that like the whole interaction and the work is based on. Um, but it did give me people that would, that would, that were gracious and like communicating and were open-minded. And I think it, when you're from a different country, you very quickly fall into that trap of, I don't know, just hanging out with Brazilian people, you know, or just hanging out with people that speak your language. And then you can be here for 10 years and never really have a meaningful, meaningful contact with someone else, you know? Yeah, but you, I suppose you're seeking comfort. And, yeah, and absolutely. Things that are familiar. Yeah. And it's, 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 um, yeah, it's, I mean, I would have 100% done it if there weren't people who, who were from here and could make, make me just as comfortable as people from home, you know? So they kind of created that home environment, um, that that I would have gotten from spending all my time with a Brazilian community in Dundee. Br- talking about Brazilian communities in Dundee, I I always try and find more Brazilian people to kind of you know th- meet you know because it just it's a way of uh, I don't know experiencing back home again. But you know I always try and find these events or whatever it is. But it's the worst thing to Google. <laughs> it's <laughs> Brazilian community. You never get to like something that you really need. You know, it's always I don't know, like beauty salons, like <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so so yeah, don't don't try and find Brazilian people in your city. I guess is my advice. <laughs> but uh, something that's come up a few times in the podcast as well is mm. that your comfort zone and pushing yourself outside of that, yeah. and that you do your best work when you're not there when you're really pushing yourself and right. when you're not comfortable it might not feel the best it may not be the best experience yeah. but it's actually a developmental thing where as a person or as a creative or an artist or a designer or a filmmaker or whatever that you actually have to push yourself because you put yourself in that situation so it, yeah. although it might not feel it might not feel like a good idea yeah. it is productive and it, it does help yeah Absolutely. I mean, there's no growth, I guess, if you're not pushing beyond that boundary of, of what you know, you know, and what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. As long as it doesn't kind of tip over into the point that you quit, you know, there's, well, there's it, a yeah. kind of really sweet spot there of not being in your comfort zone, but then not being in a place where you hate everything you do, you know, like there's a, a real kind of middle ground there. Um, so yeah, I suppose it's just doing a little at a time and just saying, yeah. okay, I'm going to challenge myself by doing this or totally. speaking to this person or approaching yeah. this differently. Or, That's right. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll do challenging things and I will have this, like, whole lot of support mechanisms and, and, and base that I can I can go and get challenged and get scared and then come back to, to what's comfortable and, and just do that kind of rhythm, you know. 
yeah, yeah that's a, a healthy balance for yeah. to have yeah that's cool um, so yeah you, you mentioned hot chocolate trust mm-hmm. um obviously andy has only ever been on the podcast that's right. but yeah for people who don't know and might haven't listened to, to andy's what is it that hot chocolate does so it's a it's a youth community project it started out at the steeple church um and it's just a lot of young people that were hanging out in that grass area um and it just started serving hot chocolate to them and building relationships and chatting, you know, about their lives and stuff. And out of that, different needs began to emerge. So some young people wanted a room to practice with their bands, you know, and so they opened a music room. And, and then now we, we have, you know, a whole music program and an arts program and like a sports hall and, you know, a bunch of different things that go on, as well as just the kind of ongoing, we open up the building for people to come and hang out and build relationships and get to know each other. Okay. So what's what's your role within that? I do a lot of the kind of volunteering and employability stuff with young people. So if they want to work on CVs and, and find jobs or, or just find a place to volunteer, you know, um, so I run the kind of internal volunteering program for young people who want to come into Hot Chocolate and volunteer. Um, so yeah, it's a really, it, it's hard to describe it because it's a really unique community when you're inside of it. You know, it's a, we have before every open session that we do, we do three open sessions a week and before every one of them we have dinner together. Um, and so we open an hour early for 13 volunteers or whatever. And then there's that kind of home cooking smell like through the building and we're all, you know, it's all kind of lit with fairy lights and stuff and we're all just like telling jokes and being weird with each other. And it's really lovely. Like it's a, it's a real family vibe. So yeah, I went into Hot Chocolate to do the interview with Andy right. um, and got a feel for the space. and. It's, it's somebody that everyone walks past all the time yeah. and just thinks it's a church. Right. And that I had no idea that you guys yeah. had so much space and That's so much right. going on. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's gone. In the sports mind. hall with like stained glass window in the sports yeah, hall. Yeah, like, it's amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. Even just to go for a tour, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really well worth it. So you were doing that at the same time as your, your master's? Yeah. 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 So we were running that at the same so, time. And uh-huh. during your master's, that was um, the lifespan of Utopia's yeah, project. That's right. So uh-huh. you started then. Yeah. While I was living in Paisley, I would periodically come back to Dundee, either to volunteer hot chocolate or to just see friends. And I was here when the Alexander Street Maltese were knocked down. I went to uh, to the law to kind of see them and get knocked down. And so I always had a weird like fascination with them. You know, it's a, it's a weird spectacle to see like four multi-story buildings collapse. And yeah, we had the opportunity to do a, a degree project at the master's and, and started thinking about Dundee, which is a city I really love. And like, what what could I talk about in the city? Like, how could I do something different here? And I was in a kind of bench of Adam Curtis and um, Mark Cousins. And they're two like documentary filmmakers who are very interesting, have very distinct styles of narration all the way through the film. Um, and ver- it almost, it's almost like a classy version of, you know, those YouTube conspiracy videos that you find, like, <laughs> that it's a guy, look at this scene, you know, and then, like, it goes to different things. It's them, like, just look at this archival footage and this thing, and, the, you know, and they build a narrative out of that, you know, but it's always so beautiful and poetic, and it has lots of insight into the real world, you know. So I wanted to do something like that, you know, something that, that explored Dundee in that personal, poetic kind of way. Um and started investigating the, the the whole history of the Alexander Street Maltese. And it turns out that they were this like super glamorous project back in the 70s. They People called them the New Hope of Dundee. Um, it was like some of the first buildings that 
from the hill town that you could see the Tay from. You know, you could like have an amazing view. They they had indoor toilets, which was really new for the people that moved into them. They had elevators, which was crazy. So people would take day trips on Saturdays to just go in the elevators. Uh, it was amazing. Like it was just a, a like there was a sense of hope and a sense of what we're building here is like this utopian thing. And then you cut to 10, 20 years later and people see those buildings as the worst thing in Dundee, you know, as, and they were like, there was lots of problems with drugs and crime and, and violence and all sorts of things. So eventually there's this kind of new utopian vision of let's clean up, you know, like let's knock them down and make the Hilltown a new, beautiful, amazing place, you know? So they, they knock the buildings down and then that site is left empty for five, six years. Um, I think that like the actual, the, the bringing down of the buildings is a, it's a sort of weird, it's a whole weird situation in that there's a lot of history and a lot of memories involved in those buildings and when they were seen as a sort of hope and they've been home to, to thousands of people. Yeah. And then they're gone within within seconds. Yeah. Although it's a, a sort of massive visual spectacle. In the same way that like, when they're doing the Commonwealth Games, they right. then the thought, railroad flats. Yeah, yeah, let's just chuck them in as part of the celebration without God, even the, considering. It's like we're living in the Hunger Games. Like it's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think that that that's the funny thing that I found is that you know from the start you have people who come into a community and say, "I have a brilliant idea. Here's here's the new utopia that we're gonna get to," and then they implement that. And then years go by and then that doesn't work. And so they implement a new one, you know? So like there was this utopia of let's clean up, let's take these buildings away. But then years go by and it's empty and it's a kind of sore sight to see, you know? And it's like a mile stretch of nothing, you know, of rubble. Um, so yeah, it's just that pattern of like, here's a utopia. Oh no, failed. Like here's another one. Oh no, failed, you know? And, and it's all people who are kind of coming into a community and saying, here's the perfect dream. Here's a system that's never going to fail. As opposed to something like you said, of let's really listen to the people who are there and what are they saying, what do they need, and, and how do we bring something organically out of that? Mm-hmm. And it turns out that this is probably the most amazing finding I think of the film is that the rubble from the Alexander Street Maltese has been used to support the machinery at the VNA, which is, I mean, there's no bigger like poetic irony to it because the VNA is this new um, utopian vision mm-hmm. to an extent. And so there's a there's a cycle there, you know, and I think in Dundee we're at a point in time where we can really change that cycle, you know, like now with the VNA. I didn't want the film to fall into either that oh the VNA sucks and the waterfront development sucks and like everyone's awful. But I also didn't want to fall into the camp of it's all perfect and we should kind of be behind a hundred percent everything that happens in there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we if we move forward with this kind of hopeful skepticism um you know we i I guess that was the kind of intention of the film was like how can we break that cycle of a a committee of people has a brilliant idea and then 10 years later everyone suffers because of that you know Mm -hmm. um but it is that is that utopia it's the we've been sold on this big ideal that Mm. The waterfront development is going to solve all the problems, yeah. um, and it's stuff we've touched on. That I mean, Dundee's obviously got some deep-rooted yeah. problems that are are bigger than putting a shiny museum down the front, right. um, and it's something that on the Beth Bait podcast she goes into right. and mentions about how it's not a quick fix; it's a it's a long-term project yeah. and a long-term slog. And the 
the key is to get everyone involved and to, to start to make people proud of that. And yeah. so there, there definitely is potential for it to make a difference. Yeah. And I think you're right in that that sort of that skepticism has to be yeah. there. And that that's yeah, we can appreciate what's coming, but we need to make sure that there's a voice behind what's important for the people who live here and that right. it's not it's not just for the, the people coming off the train and going to the DNA. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like the in the film, I talk about Brasilia, which is the city that's almost like a caricature version of this. You know, it's way more extreme, but but it's the city in the sole empty land and the Brazilian government decided to set up camp over there, you know, and build all the kind of government buildings there. And so they decided to build a city around it that was literally a utopia. Like they, they said, let's build the perfect city. And so it's this grid system and the buildings are all the same height. And it's this really kind of sanitized and white. And, you know, it's what... I don't know, James Bond films in the 70s would imagine the future to be, you know, like track white tracksuits and like all that stuff. And so they build that and people moved in. And then looking back at it historically now, you see all these mental health issues developing, you know, and like a real crisis in the city because it's a completely controlled environment. You know, the people who were moving in didn't have any say in what that that was going to look like. Um, and now it's funny because you go to Brazil and the buildings are still there and people still live in that city. But on the edges of the city, you have a lot of small communities and favelas and just the poor communities that are kind of surrounding the city. And a lot of them are there by choice. Um, a lot of them moved into those communities because they can't stand being in that sanitized environment. So they're like, let's leave the city and build our own thing with life and, and soul and, and all of that. So I think you're right. Like, And, and listening to Beth last week as well was amazing because it, it you do need to take the bigger picture and bring in the life that everyone in Dundee will, will give into these things, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to here's a perfect system, you know, because we'll never get there. So it's the perfect system is the system that takes everyone into account by their own voices and by their own concerns, as opposed to what we think their concerns are. And in your, in the documentary, you pull a lot of parallels between Brazilia and, and Dundee yeah. itself. And, um, but beyond utopian developments mm-hmm. um, do you see any other sort of similarities in the cities i think i hope not like <laughs> i think brasilia is the um the culmination of a government that didn't care didn't care about the people at all you know and that kind of really elitist thing of we we can have an idea that's good for everyone and uh let's not get in touch at all with the kind of organic things that are developing on the ground let's just you know hammer down like boot to face like implement this um and see how it turns out and then if you know this was back in the 50s so like if it didn't turn out they're like oh well like you know fuck it i don't <clears throat> i don't care like we're fine so uh, yeah i think i think the similarity is you know you can see the core of that idea you can see in all sorts of places you know so you can see in Dundee, you can see a little bit of that <clears throat> let's implement this perfect idea and then people's concerns will, will shape around what we think should happen. But you see that everywhere. You see that in a, you know, in a company, you know, like the, the kind of president, the CEO will do that, you know, or you see that in a family, like you see that, you know, in a, in a bunch of people living together. Um, I think it's just a human thing. And it just so happens that in urban development, it's, it's popped up a little bit in Dundee and it's popped up massively in Brasilia. And I have my personal connection between Dundee and Brazil. Um, so yeah, so I thought it was a, a kind of worthwhile metaphor almost. 
so I want to talk a little bit about your creation process, where you go from concept to actual mm. final render and then putting that out. How how does that work? And is there consistencies across films and across projects that you do? Yeah, I guess I. Uh, to different levels of success in the different films that I made, I try to lay the inf the kind of themes and information that I have about a certain situation out in front of me before I start a film. So the, this writer, historian that I really like called Hayden White, he talks about the documentary or the historic process to be uh, transforming knowing into telling. Um, so you pick up a bunch of things that you know, you know, so you know that this is that the, you know this happened to the Alexander Street Maltese and then this happened and then this happened and you know that the VNA is there and you know that Brasilia is like this and you know that the response to these things is like this and that and so you kind of lay all of that out and you're like okay what's the thread of the story here um how where do I start where I do where do I bring in Brasilia into that story you know when you say lay it out is that physically on yeah the, physically on the table? yeah 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 so you know, either like post-its or bits of paper and, and just kind of names of things, you know, so like Brasilia and Maltese and, you know, like all these different things. Um, and then that the kind of gaps in that story become apparent when, once you lay that stuff out. Um, <clears throat> so in the last bit of Utopias, at one point, I moved completely from talking about um, urban development to talking about filmmaking and, and the fail my failure in filmmaking. Um, and that was because I laid out this whole like urban development history kind of thing in front of me. And I thought that that was too removed, you know, it was too separate. And so I added both the personal, here's my struggle making this film, but also I added a, a personalized narration, you know. So in the narration for the film, I say things like I'm from Brazil or I say, you know, I was making this film. I made breakfast this morning. Like there's all these personalized kind of touches. Because I laid out the information and I was like, that's clearly what, like, there's a bit of a glue that's missing from this. And there's a, there's a gap here. Um, it's totally intuitive, I guess. There's nothing about it that is hard science, you know, <laughs> like you just lay things out and you see how you feel. Um, and then you make the film and you're like, oh, I feel differently now. <laughs> but, you know, so there's all those, those situations, but yeah but I think it's the same with any piece of work you're going to look back on it and right. and see it in context and, and sort of have a slightly different opinion on it yeah and that it is a snapshot in, in time yeah in the same way as these audio recordings right. I think that in five podcast time my opinions might well change Absolutely. and something might change in the world drastically and how often do your opinions change on your own work would you say in my own work I think I, I constantly look back and think that could have been better right but that's always in hindsight and having had more experience at that point as well. Mm. So it's it's only natural. Yeah. If your best work is your latest piece, then anything before that's going to be worse, right? Right. Absolutely. So and hopefully you are starting to dislike your past work more because you're getting better at it. Yeah, and so. then you look at styles and trends uh -huh. and all the rest of it that, again, yeah, make it seem old fashioned. And, right. But then you, sometimes you you get a little moment of joy when you look at something that you come across a folder or an old thing and go, ah, oh, I forgot about that. And right. you actually see some of the nice qualities or right. a nice bit of type or a yeah. cool image that you took or something like that. that totally. Just like, oh, that, that was quite nice. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I can see all these faults in it and things I would improve now, yeah. there's still a, a sort of underlying concept or yeah. a nice aesthetic to it or something. Yeah. So there are, I think, yeah. It is kind of funny because I was, you know, making this film and I was thinking, I really want this personal narration to, to come in 
but the feeling that it, this was too much like YouTube conspiracy video style, you know, and then I watch someone like Mark Cousins and I see what he's done and think, you know, like that, here's something I love in that style, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess there is that thing of the liking of what you do depends on trends and what, what you've seen already, you know, and yeah, things change with time, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. In the documentary, mm -hmm. you, there's a scene, a couple of scenes where you, you look at the bridge and you talk about when you'd seen this sort of flap of fabric uh, blown in the wind, but you weren't, you were unable to capture it. And then you talk about that experience and, and sort of and around that, and it's a really nice, mm. a nice piece and something that, yeah, that it sort of set it apart for me because right. it made me feel that the the documentary was a development and you could sort of understand to understand the process right. of it. Um, but I was wondering how much, so how much does it change as you start to, to film and yeah. like, I, I don't know if you plan shots at the start or yeah. how does that process work? Because within Utopia, it seems like it changed yeah bits and pieces have sort of been put in or maybe pulled out yeah absolutely i had a so i had that kind of thread into different bits of paper of what i wanted the narrative to look like and at the start it looked very much like dundee and the multi-story buildings and just the history of that you know and, and and then eventually i was like wait you know there's some similarities here with brasilia you know and with that um, with that development and I spoke to a, I interviewed a couple of people off the record kind of thing um, and, and they told me things like um, the multi-story the multi-story buildings being called the new hope of Dundee you know and so that theme of utopia began to emerge and I was like wait a second Brazilian was that kind of utopia utopian vision as well um, and so that kind of started getting pieced together so when I started filming it was a, a history of Dundee and the multi-story buildings with some mentions to Brasilia um, and then one day halfway through halfway through making the film you know because there's a lot of kind of static shots of Dundee in the film generally just kind of b-roll <clears throat> and so I always kept looking for like things and I drove past the bridge and saw this flap of fabric coming because they, they were doing this like maintenance I don't know if they're still doing it um, but there's this maintenance going on and there was what looked like tents around certain sections of the rail bridge and then this this piece the, a bit of it just ripped and it was kind of it almost looked like a flag kind of waving underneath the bridge and it looked amazing you know it's a scene that you see every day but then with with a little thing that's different and so it looks really cool um and i was in the car so i was like oh i must come back tomorrow and you know <laughs> film this i came back the next day and it was fixed like, I have no idea how they did that. Like, it's the most efficient, uh, you know, company. That, I mean, they deserve a plug. I'm going to look up who they are. But um, it, the, the next day wasn't there. And and so I lost this shot, you know. And then I started thinking that there's something really similar about what I was doing to the process of you go into a very organic, very kind of human situation and you implement a system, you know, you, you're like, okay, here's, here's the perfect thing for this bit that's going to solve everything. I looked at that bridge and I was like, here's the perfect shot. Like this shot's going to be amazing. People are going to be really impressed. And then you get there and it's not there anymore. And it kind of fails and it falls flat. And, and then I was disappointed on, on the B-roll that I had for the film. I was like, you know, you know, in a, in a kind of metaphorical way, I reenacted that failure that all these communities that I'm talking about have represented. And then I started picking up on different things, you know, so I really wanted a shot of an airplane coming into the D. I wanted, you know, like a few different like B-roll kind of shots and they were impossible to get, you know, so I was trying to like squash really organic moments into 
my pre-planned like systematic thing you know um and so it's like this a, i'm a i'm a metaphor for what's what happened in brasilia and for what could happen in dundee so that very much developed as the film went on so very late in the game i added that whole personal part um and yeah so and i think it added you know i hate doing something that's completely serious um and it added a little bit of humor as well that mm that I thought was missing, missing at the time. And it, and it, you know, I think, I don't know, I don't know if that's your experience, but I feel like the waterfront development can be a very sensitive subject to talk about in Dundee sometimes. And so I didn't want it to sound like I was preaching, you know, I didn't want the film to be, here's all the mistakes, here's how it should be solved, you know? So I very much put myself into that to say, this is natural. This is like human behavior, you know, and in the smallest scale of, a, a kind of dude making a film like you, you get that trend happening too um yeah just trying to create those echoes i suppose <laughs> yeah i think the, the sort of juxtaposition of the the very structured rigid stuff and the the <laughs> old footage of that right and even just the way in that was shot and then right. that contrasting against the stuff that you did just which seems sort of off the cuff and uh, yeah the even the shots that were slightly out of focus and you talk around <laughs> That's that right and, yeah, the contrast and aesthetic was really nice, and the points huh. I made were brilliant. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Obviously, you had to capture the stories of people in that as well, other than the, your yeah. own sort of opinions and, and thoughts. <clears throat> yeah. So how did you go about the the recruitment process? For that? I think it's it's again it's it's hard to kind of put a system to it. So every time it's looked different. Uh, for this film specifically, it was just putting something out on Facebook to friends and go like, "Do you know anyone who's lived in Maltese, um, or do you know anyone who?" who was involved in the development of the city or in the decision to to bring down the Maltese and emailing a few key people and in emailing community officers and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I think through because of working through Hot Chocolate, I, I knew a few people in that kind of social, social groups and um, community groups um, that I could reach out to and ask those kinds of questions. But it looks really different. So so a couple of years ago, I did this film in Brazil and in the you know, we literally just packed our bags and went to Brazil and hoped that we would be able to get some interviews with people that we met, you know, so I have family there. But, you know, Sao Paulo is such a big city that you can't do this Dundee thing of, does anyone know this person? You know, like, it just, you don't get that. Um, so we went to, we had a, a contact before we went with a music school in what used to be the biggest favela in South America, I think. Um, and now is a much better place to live in, but it used to be really violent and, and all of that. And so we spent a day in that music school um, and met a few people who live in the community and work in the music school and asked them, like, we really want to speak to residents of this community. Do you know anyone? Um, and so they took us to, to one of the new kind of government buildings on the edge of that community to interview a person that they really liked and that they thought had a good story. We got there and they didn't want to be interviewed but their neighbor was sweeping the sidewalk and she was like, I would love to be interviewed for this. So, and she had a great story. You know, she lived in that community for 30 something years um, and saw it from before it becoming a, a shanty town until now, which is kind of on, on the other side of that, like more structured and, and safer and all of that stuff. So there's a lot of luck, I think. And there's a lot of being able to, I don't know, just make a decision on the cuff. It's interesting that you mentioned luck. Because again, it's another common thread that's come through the podcast and that people often feel that they've been lucky in certain respects and that things have only come off because they've got lucky. But then I think that 
if you work hard enough, then luck tends to come. Right. Or whatever that is, it might not well be luck. It might just be a payoff for right. whatever work they've done. It, I, I mean, it's interesting because you do, you know, this this lady that we filmed in Brazil. Uh, yeah, it was lucky that she was sweeping the sidewalk at the same time as she heard us talk about the film and, and then decided to be a part of that. But if you think about it, you know, we had to kind of mobilize crew and equipment and, and plane tickets and choose a very specific community to go in for that to happen. So it's almost like, you know, the tip of the iceberg is the luck bit. But then underneath there's a bunch of very deliberate decisions of where to go and what to do, you know. Interviewing is something that I'm throwing myself in, if you like, with the podcast. And that it's still very much a, a steep learning curve and how I get people to, to sort of engage with me that I've potentially never met before over a very short period of time and to, to get them to unveil the, the workings behind their profession and get that really interesting content and that those statements and those stories and those ideas that, that are probably quite close to people, I have to get them out quite quickly. Obviously, it's a similar act to what you do with the, the documentary mm -hmm. type interviews. So is there anything that you you do in order to, to sort of put people at ease and then start to tease out those stories or how you help interviews or conversations flow? Yeah, you know, I, I need to write down what I do because it kind of looks different every time, I guess. Um, I think just the usual things to put people at ease are usually in place. So kind of not starting with... A super hard question but starting with how are you doing today you know like what how, what's your day being like and that's not stuff you may be able to use in the film but it eases you into to something else um it's tricky because if you're making a film you also you know hopefully will exclude the the interviewer from from that footage so not only does it need to be natural but you need to make sure that they're saying full sentences as opposed to just kind of yes or no answers so it's really tricky, and I guess you know you have to hold a lot of things in your in your head. I uh, filming this this lady in Brazil who um, who was sweeping the sidewalk at the same time. Um, we were interviewing her all the way through, and she she's been in this community in Brazil for thirty years. Um, saw through was a single mom, a nurse, and just saw the most violent things ever. Um, she had lived in this community for thirty years. And seeing its most violent days, you know, the, the proper like city of God style, you know, things going on. She was telling us, as I was interviewing her, she was telling us all these stories about coming back home because she gets a call in the hospital where she worked that there was a shooting going on. And she wanted to come back home because her kids were home on their own. Um, and so she would run through the community, literally hearing bullets like pass her um, and, and getting back home. Um, and then just laying on the ground with the kids um, for hours. She told us this, this is a really dark story, but she told us about going out to work one day and two guys being tied to a lamppost and a sign on them saying, we're gonna kill these guys tomorrow if anyone sets them free or calls the police and the police wouldn't come to that community anyway, um, we'll kill you and your family as well. So uh, she, she talked about this whole like day where people were going in and out to work and these two guys were tied screaming, like, because they knew what was going to happen at the end of the day. And she and, and people just were walking by because they knew what would happen to them if they did anything. Now that's, like, the darkest ever, you know? Like, the, it doesn't get much darker than that. And yet, she was talking about this in this totally, like, matter-of-fact, yeah, this happened. Like, no, it's fine. Like, I, you know, I saw it and stuff. And in my mind, it was like, how are you not, I don't know, how are you not showing emotion with that? You know, I couldn't understand it. 
Um, and so we get to the end of the interview and I'm like, well, okay, that's what I have. You know, I don't have her showing emotion about that stuff, but at least I have the stories or whatever. And I asked my friend who's operating the camera to, to switch, start switching stuff off. And he just says, why don't you ask her? He didn't speak Portuguese. So, so he said, why don't you ask her um, if she wants to say hi to anyone? Um, and so I, and I thought this is stupid, right? Like, well, how am I going to use the footage of her saying hi to her neighbor, you know, in the film? So I asked that and she immediately started crying and said, you know, I want to say hi to everyone in the Iliopolis, which is the community that she was in, whether you're good or bad. Um, I just want to say that I love you. And we unpacked that a little bit. And, you know, she's been in the community for 30 years, a community where life expectancy for young males for a long time was 25 years old. And in that community, she saw, like, little girls when she was a single mom grow up, have have kids. Those kids get killed when they were 15 because of the drug trafficking. And them having kids who then got killed, you know, like 11, 12 years later. So in 30 years of being in that community she would you know she would see a guy who's the new big drug lord but she knew their grandma you know and she 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 helped her grandma buy groceries when they were really struggling and then she gets to the end of this interview and she says i want to say hi to everyone whether you're good or bad whether you guys you're the guys like tied to the lamppost or the guys who tied them there because i know all of you i know your moms i knew you as babies i i knew all of that stuff and that's the key that's the key to the film that's the key to the whole experience you know and it wouldn't have come out without a really stupid question, <laughs> like a, a question that I, I could never have planned to ask that question. Um, so, yeah, talk about luck again. you know. <laughs> but I guess it's just like trying to, to be really insightful in the interview and trying to explore different, you know, if a path is not working out, like what what is, you know, and even posing that question to the interviewer, like wh what is the key to what you're saying? Like what's what's the theme that you see across your whole experience that kind of thing again talking about capturing stories you mentioned before we, we got started that you're actually starting your own podcast yeah. tell us a little bit about that yeah so um it's this podcast called everything mixtape and the idea it was a mix mixtape mixtape yeah. yeah so the idea is that every week i bring in a different guest and for 15 minutes they recommend me anything and it could be it could be a movie or a, or a you know a writer or whatever it is uh, or it could be, you know, a recipe or a place they really like or a feeling they like to get, you know, like anything like that. Um, again, talking about interviewing, I realized that people tend to be their most passionate in an, interview, in an interview when you ask them to give you advice or to recommend you something. And so I thought maybe like 15 minutes we can capture really passionate uh, chat, you know, and, and see see what comes out of that. So, yeah, so that, that should be out by now. Yeah. And um, the... So obviously I, the, my podcasts sort of tend between 40 minutes to an hour uh -huh. because I found that 20 minutes to half an hour probably isn't enough to get in depth yeah. with people and, and sort of really understand their story and understand yeah. their process and how they work and, yeah. and things in and around that but I really like the idea of short sharp things yeah. where it can be done quickly on a commute just listening yeah. to it and it can be completely diverse and random right yeah. absolutely that's that's what I'm really keen to get to the really random kind of recommendations but yeah, it's just a totally different beast, you know, because on the other side of it being really quick and sharp, we don't get in depth, you know, there's no kind of real feeling into it. There's, there's just people being really passionate about something and, and, and telling a quick story. Um, so yeah, I think they're two different beasts in a way. Mm. So what drove you to, to start it? I think 
Um, well, I, I love podcasts. Like I, I listen to podcasts. I think every day and and like experimenting with different things. In fact, there's a new one called "Where the Hell Is Richard Simmons?" Have you have you listened to that? You know Richard Simmons? He he's this like American guy who do, did like fitness stuff, and he wore really short shorts and was really like flamboyant or whatever, and he disappeared. And so there's this serial style podcast trying to find him. Um, and it's incredible. Like it's it's been my highlight in the last couple of weeks. But anyway, I love podcasts, and and I wanted to do something like that. And I guess there's the like again that filmmaking thing that I had in Brazil of. Yeah, but to do a podcast, you need a studio and you need a whatever, whatever, whatever. And I think like listening to your podcast was a big like kick up the butt to like whoa, what you you can do it. Like here's someone else doing it, and um, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Dundee and in Scotland that you can capture with that, um, with you know affordable equipment and like a kind of easy. You know, I I'm, I live on Union Street, so it's quite. Um, into the city center. So it's easy to bring people to my living room and interview them there. Um, so yeah, so I just kind of decided to stop being like, oh, it's not going to be as good as this American life or whatever. Um, but but it's going to be interesting and you can get the ball rolling and you know who knows what's going to happen in two, three years. Yeah, and again, this is something that's come up before, but it's that thing of... Actually, there's a great article um, which I'll, I'll sort of put in the notes of the show, but... Cool can't remember the, the guy who wrote it but it's called ideas are worthless okay and the, the concept is that anyone can have an idea right. but not everyone will act upon it right. and an idea only gains value when you actually do something about it because having a conversation or writing something down in a notepad and letting it fester and disappear yeah yeah it's meaningless it's worthless. right and someone else could be coming up with that same idea right now and acting on it and actually <laughs> doing right. something about yeah. it um and it's something that people have said before in the podcast and that Dundee's just of the size of a city that you can make things happen and yeah. you can actually make a difference and you can influence right. the community. Yeah. So just get off your arse and actually do yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it's so easy to tweet, you know, um, Beth, for example, or like, you know, like Jillian from Creative Dundee or like just cool people that are doing really significant things in the city. Um, you can just tweet at them and go like, do you want to hang out for an hour and be interviewed? Yeah, it happens, you know. Yeah, and people have been so receptive to the podcast. Right. Um, I'd say probably 90% of the people who I've spoken to have right. been like, yeah, definitely, I'm up for it. Right. So it feels like the, the people in the creative community want to have a chat and want to let their voice yeah. heard and get their opinions across, which is great. Totally. Yeah. What's your advice on starting a podcast? Ooh, good question. The framework's key. So you've got that and you've got your sort of time limit get a really quiet place to record it I think that's <laughs> yeah as yeah everyone will probably have heard the doors opening and closing <laughs> as we sit in this space in Fleet Collective which is not ideal but it, it does the job yeah and I think you can become very precious about sound quality I could go and pay for studio time and try and book people in and do all that and it makes it very formal um, and it means that I have to bring people to me and it's just it, it didn't have the right feel and aesthetic for what I was trying to do. And I think that's key as well. If, if you want a really polished, shiny podcast of this American Life style thing yeah. with all the the editing time involved in that, yeah. then yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah. But that's not what I was trying to achieve. So right. yeah, I think framing up your audience, your sort of aesthetic mm. um, and the type of thing that you want to put across yeah. is really key in, in building an audience as well. Yeah. 
Um, and that's one of the most difficult things is the constant turnover of it and the amount of work right. that I just I, I just didn't realise. But yeah. until you throw yourself into it, you, yeah. yeah. Now I just make it work and I have processes yeah. I put in place. So right. I write the show notes, I update the website, I create a draft and send that to the the guest on the podcast. Okay. And then I get approval and then I once I decide an order, I then record an introduction and an outro. I yeah. put that together, I export it, it goes up on SoundCloud, yeah. which isn't necessarily the best platform. It's just the one that I chose at the time and based upon what I'd read, it was the best way to go. Okay. There might well be a better way to do it. And then not only getting that out and getting that up on SoundCloud, it's the, the social media aspect. Of right. It. And it's, responding to all the little comments. Yeah. And, I mean, you yeah. can put as much content as you like on the internet, but if uh-huh. no one knows about it, then it's, <laughs> yeah, it's pointless. The whole, whole reason I'm doing this is to get the stories about to as many people as I can. And yeah, it means tweeting, it means responding to people's tweets. It means trying to get articles written, getting featured in places, creating extra content. So I've got to create an image for the website, for Instagram, um, post up on Twitter I've now started doing a little snippet video okay. it's something that I started last week and I'm probably going to continue cool. so it's just a, a minute snippet of oh, an interesting nice. part of the conversation so it yeah. gives you bef- without committing to a whole episode yeah. you can just get an insight into it. so yeah it's, it's all those things that I've learned over the last three, four months I've been doing it yeah. cool. there's a constant desire to improve I think again, the, the sound quality could be improved the the way I ebb and flow conversations and the yeah. things that I try and pull out of people could be yeah. improved and the amount I sort of interject and right. try to dive into those uh, uh, little stories that people have. Right. And that's where the, the sort of valuable stuff really starts coming out. So out with the the podcast and stuff, um, where where do you look for, for inspiration? So hmm. whether that's in other podcasts or books or films. Or, yeah. I think, yeah, the basic kind of podcasts and, and, and films and, and, and books like is a constant rotation that I get things from. And I really like that kind of cross-pollinating ideas of to- from totally different things, you know. So I, I read someone recently talk about Tolkien and how he hated fantasy. Um, and so he based Lord of the Rings on um, like hiking journals and books about bugs and like greek mythology and he put he put all of that together and made the best fantasy book ever so you know it turns out they make the best fantasy book by hating fantasy and using everything else you know so i like the idea of you know like i want to make a documentary about dundee so let's cast a really wide inspiration net you know and pick up different things and then that that's where the interesting stuff about you know brasilia starts coming out because you're like oh yeah there is a parallel you know um, so yeah, all of that stuff. Um, a really big place for me online is Brain Pickings. I don't know if, you, if you've if you seen it. So it's this, um, I always get her name wrong, Maria Popova, I think. And she started this, at first it was just a newsletter of like, here's really interesting things. And now it's a, this huge online presence and website where every day she posts a different thing of, I don't know, here's, um, I don't know, Virginia Woolf's thoughts on terrorism. Like, you know, like just really random things like that. Um, so I find a lot of inspiration in that stuff. Um, but yeah, mostly just trying to mix things and ask people in just in conversation, weird questions that might get to something that we wouldn't talk about otherwise. And yeah, just having experiences I don't have in terms of intellectual conversations and um, 
input or whatever. Yeah. So it can be from anywhere, from anything. It's just that consumption. I guess so, yeah. I, there, I, you know, I am, it is kind of a crutch to go to, go to films and books and, uh, and, and certain websites and articles and stuff. And like Twitter, I, th- I find amazing for, you know, just... I just go through liking everything I want to read later, you know, <laughs> like in the evening, just read a bunch of random articles, mostly about Trump now. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it's, I, I think just gathering all of that stuff, but you know, it, occasionally it also comes from meeting someone you don't know and then getting away from the usual, like, where do you work? What do you know? What do you like? And stuff and going into like really interesting questions about them, you know, and I don't know, just trying to get things out of people that you're like, I don't think you've said this to anyone in the last year, you know, <laughs> like let's, Let's have a real conversation. So obviously you've got the, the podcast coming out and you're still working at, at Hot Chocolate. That's right. But what else for the future? What's what's on the horizon for you? Yeah, so I'm last year I crowdfunded for a film with Mike Haynes. Uh, Mike Haynes is a, is a guy who lives in Dundee and a couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember, there was this big thing where um, ISIS did this really kind of cinematic almost image of killing a bunch of charity workers and journalists from the States and the UK. Um, and they were all wearing kind of orange jumpsuits and it was in the desert and, and they were all beheaded on camera. And it was kind of in the front page of every newspaper at the time. turns out that the second guy who was killed in that, um, his brother, he was an, a charity worker in Syria, I think. And his brother, Mike, lives in Dundee. Um, and it's this really great, like, normal guy that you meet in a pub, you know, and, and had been a mental health nurse for a long time before. This happened to his brother. And instead of kind of going that route of, um, oh, I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to, I don't know, full on go into people who hate Islam or people who hate uh, Middle Eastern countries and people who advocate for war or whatever. He became an incredible peace activist. You know, he just became... He's been in the last two years, I think he's been to 37 countries and he met the Pope and like all these different things, all going around saying we need to be tolerant of other people's religion. We need to to advocate for peace. We need to build a community. Um, And by doing that, that's how we don't get to a place of um, fanaticism and terrorism and all of that. Um, So he's a really amazing guy, you know, like had a like such a gracious response and, and so, so interesting. So we crowdfunded to get that film done and we filmed a little bit last year and we're filming a little bit more later this month. So that should be out in the second half of this year. Um, I'll try and book a few, part of the crowdfunding was to try and book a few screenings in Dundee and in Glasgow, Edinburgh and stuff. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll put stuff out once that's ready. Yeah. So if anyone does want to find you, get in touch with you, check out on social media, yeah. where would they do that? So uh, Sidling Bears on Twitter, and samgonsalves.com for like portfolio stuff and my own kind of knockoff version of brain pickings that I've, <laughs> I've been trying to do of just kind of daily things about nonfiction storytelling or storytelling in general and that's just sidling bears on facebook if you follow that that should be it great great cool thank you thank you <laughs>
and soundcloud.com forward slash everything mixtape to go check that out. And I'd also highly recommend his documentary work. Beyond that, I got a really nice tweet this week um, from Piers Duplock, uh, just saying that he was out in the sun at DCA having a beer and listening to the podcast. Um, and it's those kind of tweets that really motivate me and make me think that this podcast maybe is making a bit of a difference. And at least it's getting the stories out and and spreading them to the, the audience of the, the creative community in and around Dundee. So yeah, if if you are listening, give us a little tweet, let me know where, let me know what episode, if you enjoyed it. But similarly, if you didn't, if there's anything you think it could be improved, I'm always up for a bit of feedback. Again, just, just drop me a tweet. So that's at CCC Dundee. And yeah, go tell all your friends. And I'll catch you next week. Goodbye.